when we're talking about the European project, I'm really hearing the German project. Right now there is a French fig leaf, but the project seems German. The European Commission increasingly looks like a, I mean, Brussels looks like a big German embassy. Welcome to another episode of Uncommon Decency. Uh, as a lot of our uh, audience will know, one of the premises of our show is to examine, is, is to examine the ideas driving Europe's post-war experiment in liberal supranationalism and what new alternatives can be opposed to it uh, on both of its major prongs, namely you know, internally the, the creation of unelected institutions in Brussels to govern vast internal markets in a common political space, but externally as well, uh, Europe's uh, strategic role on the world stage. And, and one of the striking features of, of the European ideology that governs uh, the EU, if we can call it that, is how much has been devoid of, of realism. In fact, the utopian nature of, of the supranational regime that governs much lawmaking and, and rhetoric in the continent was really on full display in the recent news cycle with this belief that a single unelected body, the European Commission, could, effect, could efficiently and effectively procure vaccines for 450 million citizens and other events that we'll also get, get into over the course of the episode. Um, this, this lack of realism has also been manifest in the strategic realm with, with this new buzzword of strategic autonomy that was con concocted by French President uh, Emmanuel Macron. We'll, we'll get into the details of this later. Um, although less attention, we, we, be, we believe, is given to, to the equally utopian agenda deployed internally from the early days of the European project to give meaning to this relentless course to build a unitary form of governance for the nations of Europe. And um, it, it is our sense that ideology and dogmatism have been just as palpable in this, in this domestic realm, too. And today we welcome two distinguished commentators and observers of, of Europe who spend a lot of time and effort uh, building up the critique to European supranationalism, on one end of the line, we have Anna Welles, uh, who is Vice President for External Affairs of the Edmund Burke Foundation and Senior Director of the White House Writers Group. Uh, the Edmund Burke Foundation sponsored uh, last year's uh, NatCon gathering in, in Rome, which uh, a lot of our audience will be familiar with. Um, and on the other end of the line, we have John O'Sullivan, who is a veteran columnist and writer who spent several decades observing uh, Europe and the transatlantic relationship from, from several roles in the, the conservative commentariat. Uh, he was a parliamentary sketch writer in Westminster in the 70s, wrote speeches for, for, uh, for Prime Minister Thatcher in the 80s, uh, at a time when the European question, by the way, was at the heart of, of internal debates within the Tory party. Uh, he succeeded uh, Bill Buckley as editor-in-chief of the National Review, and he's now president of the Danube Institute in Budapest. So I want to just set the tables here for, for my first question, starting with Anna and then turning to John, with a quick detour into the kind of Europe that uh, our generation, Francois, Francoises and, and mine, have grown up to, ha, have grown up in, as opposed to the one that existed in the decades when this ideology began to claim dominance. As a generation, the under 30s in Europe, uh, the UK included, have been fed by the textbook, a worldview that sees the EU as the sole conduit for enlightened, pacified, and efficient relations among the nations of the continent. This cliche was then elevated as a consensus among the major political families at the level of the institutions that this ideology generated a priori preempting the emergence of an intellectual alternative that European supranationalism should even reckon with. Last February, the gathering of the NADCON succeeded in federating under a, a, a coherent nationalist mantle, a mosaic of persuasions, 
all coming from particular moral and national traditions, yet all united in the rejection of a single mode of supranational politics that increasingly entrusts the ruling of 27 European nations to a narrow cater of bureaucrats driven by universalistic liberalism and a dislike of the nation state. So over a year since Rome, Anna, how do you reflect on the headway made? How should we think about the coming one uh, as a supranational ideology that powers the European institution seems quite frankly, undaunted by their cumulative uh, debacles in, in the case of COVID uh, primarily? Um, um, yes, um, uh, thank you, Jorge. Um, so um, I'm actually a little bit surprised by how undaunted indeed uh, the European Commission and the European Union is by, by its utter failure to secure vaccines for its people. And in fact, to rally first to the help of Italy and to deal with COVID just as it was unfolding country by country. Um, and, uh, and then reacting, of course, each country reacted selfishly um, and tried to just protect itself and its own people. But maybe just a step back, since you, you were talking about the generation that actually was born into this new Europe or into this brave new world as it was arising. There's one point I'd like to make that I think is not being made almost ever and I think it's incredibly <clears throat> important because it points to some of the division, explains them, and also explains that the phrase European values that's being used now is uh, really just a concoction and a fairly recent one, uh, rather than something that in fact represents something old storied um, that's always been around. And that is, let's go back to the beginning of it all, not of the European Union, but of this one Europe. And it goes back to one day really, and that's, um, June 4th, 1989, we have an anniversary coming up. Uh, that is the day of the first semi-free elections in the former communist bloc in uh, the country of my birth, Poland. Uh, and it also goes back, um, which is, I think, good to keep in mind. Uh, on the very same day, it's the Tiananmen Square massacre, literally on the same day, as the people of Poland were voting the communists out or part of the parliament that they were allowed to vote out and the entire Senate, which was being recreated um, and which was about to usher the end of the, of the Soviet system. Uh, the very same day, the Communist Party of China made a decision that we're not making that mistake. They just cracked down and they decided that um, they will try something else. They will save this huge project by cracking down and somehow figuring out a way for the West to give them the intellectual and financial resources that the Soviets lacked so that they could grow up and be a real competition. Um, and they will not collapse as this sclerotic thing that they were watching the Soviets collapsing as. Uh, so this is really kind of day one. And I think it's important because it went, it, it marks how Europe and the world in fact went. One part, the West, went hugely with China. That was, I think, true with Europe as well. And making money and creating a global world in which the barriers are minimal, the rules are similar everywhere, business is done very smoothly. And the other part, which is the half of Europe where John now lives and where I was born and I had friends, family, and myself were very invested in that struggle. Generational, multi, it really was a multi-generational uh, relay in that part of Europe that felt that this is the moment for sovereignty. This is the moment for self-determination. Um, and it seems to me that this tension remains, only globalism became stronger. Money is in fact being made. Uh, and Europe started taking in a very odd way, 
the place of the old Soviet principles only for the entire continent. And whenever we, whenever I hear, and I understand this will be controversial, but I'm, uh, you know, I'm not speaking as a politician, and I don't think that I need to worry about it. But um, when we're talking about the European project, I'm really hearing the German project right now. There is a French fig leaf, but the project seems German. The European Commission increasingly looks like a, I mean, Brussels looks like a big German embassy. Uh, the media, it, I mean, Germany is the dominant player in the European media, uh, certainly the dominant player in Eastern and, and Central Europe, where they constantly, where the media in Europe is complaining about the takeover of the media in countries like Hungary or Poland, meaning the diminishing role of German media. I mean, just let's just keep it in perspective. Uh, their influence on the European court, NGOs that they found and that they fund, and, and those NGOs' influence on the um, on the legal procedures, on the sort of general fomenting of issues that are on the front pages of, of the newspapers. So I actually see the NotCon project as the most natural, the most obvious way to go. And that is all these countries waking up to the, to the fact that their national identity, their culture, their religion, or their you know, lack of very strong religious feeling is something that defines them. They like being the way they are. They speak different languages. This isn't, we're not talking about, you know, Kansas, Kansas and, and, and New York here. Those 27 countries are, also mean almost as many languages um, and official languages. Um, so um, I think that National Conservative Project is just a return to normal of sovereign nation states, of sovereign people, of independent countries that are just waking up to the fact that they cannot have unelected people in Brussels who don't speak their language, who often never visited the places they come from, telling them how to live and claiming that it's in fact a European value. You know, European value is a Judeo-Christian tradition, about 2000 years of, of Christianity and, you know, another, another 1500 years of uh, Old Testament. And then it's, so yeah, I actually feel pretty pretty good about it despite the fact that it feels really, really dark. And uh, COVID, I, I think, is in the end going to catch up with them. Comparison with Great Britain, which, which has done extremely well ever since they successfully unrolled the vaccine. Um, Hungary, Poland, all the countries that took responsibility for themselves actually did fairly well. And I, yes, I do feel good about it. And um, I, I just hope that we will recognize the fact that China is in the picture that Central Europe is incredibly important, that if the West withdraws from it or the US withdraws from it, China will go in first softly with educational institutions, then hard because they will want to get to the Baltic. They will want to go to the North Sea and the Atlantic and, and so on. But that is how I see it. I see it as a return to what's normal for proud, dignified, normal human beings who belong to a tradition, their children are born into it, and it just keeps coming back like, like the voice of conscience. It's just a natural thing for human beings who are civilized to have. Well, uh, let me come in at this point, if I could. Uh, and obviously, uh, uh, Jorge, uh, you and Anna have raised a, num a really rich, um, uh, a really rich smorgasbord of issues there. Um, I'm just going to pick a few points. Um, the first is your question about can the younger generation 
um, in a sense, envisage anything other than Europe, having been, so to speak, indoctrinated and conscripted in, in, through via the educational system and then in the political system into the the view of Europe, uh, sup of U supranationalism, and of um, the, the nature of Europe and its values. Um, and I think that, yes, this can happen, um, but it's obviously going to be a long job and going to be worked out um, in the political system and in intellectual life. Let me just make the point why I think it's possible that people can and will escape this. Partly, of course, it's because it, this doctrine does not um, work very well. And that's always a damaging thing for a doctrine. If it produces bad results, as it's just done, uh, as you pointed out in the pandemic, obviously people are gonna look for something else. But think of the way in which this indoctrination occurred, not very well in every respect. If you look at, at Britain, for example, the reason why Brexit happened was because when we entered in 19, uh, when we confirmed our membership in 1975, there was always in the opinion polls, a large number of people, it varied from about 25 to 50% at times, um, who rejected Britain's membership, didn't want it, would like to see uh, our, our leaving the EU. That's always been there. Now, within the Labour Party, what happened was that gradually, um, the younger generation, which had been uh, gone to university, which had been educated out of its, so to speak, patriotism, out of its attachment to the working class, um, and saw, it, saw itself as a new and um, successful, I suppose, uh, globalizing bureaucracy. Um, they, they, were, they, were in the, they, they saw Labour as a progressive party which was going to accept this progressive movement. That's how they saw things. And that's how the majority of people in the Labour Party still see things. Of course, that isn't how um, the, uh, the original working class base of the Labour Party saw things. And that's why there is this enormous um, um, realignment of British politics taking place as we speak, as you probably know. The recent by-election uh, in Britain saw um, a 19% swing uh, from the uh, Labour Party to the Conservatives in what used to be a rock-solid area of Britain, and the same results were, were shown, were seen in the local elections too. So parties are changing their class composition uh, with the workers moving right and the so to speak, the public sector bourgeoisie uh, and int intelligentsia moving left. Now, um, what was happening in the Tory party? Well, the Tory party had two essential factions. Everybody thought that the Tory party was gonna be safely European because it's newer, brighter, sharper, um, yeah, more middle-class members were, did seem to be pro-European. The people we thought of as being um, uh, anti-European, I was one of them actually, um, or rather uh, anxious to uh, restore British democracy. Um, we were always depicted as, so to speak, nostalgic, backward-looking people. Now, of course, um, some of these allegations in all cases are going to be true <laughs> because you can always find all kinds of bad reasons for believing in good things. But having said that, um, the Tory party's rank and file, its supporters, its voters, um, they contained, um, most of those were in favor of, of British sovereignty and democratic independence. And that remained the case 
for the 40 years of our membership. It, it was just there. The Tory party leadership knew it, it didn't like it, but it thought it could handle the situation by having a kind of occasionally fractious relationship with Brussels to demonstrate their attachment to British rights and so on and so forth. The problem for the, uh, the, the eager young things who were very pro-Europe in the Tory party was that what they really had was a career interest. I mean, they could see that if they were get, going to get on in politics, at the end of the day, they might do badly in British politics, but there could be a nice, safe, prosperous birth for them in the, in the Brussels bureaucracy. <laughs> And, and, and that was a factor. And another factor, of course, is what I would call um, the snobbery of um, David Goodhart's um, um, anywheres, people who think that they have left behind um, the, a, a, um, a backward-looking uh, population in a backward-looking country, and now they're moving forward into a streamlined Europe. There's all kinds of silly snobberies about this. Quite one of them was a Polish friend said to me, he said, you know, I, I have, um, I mean, I work, he said, in the British university system, and I find people like me, they think that because they support Europe, they are somehow globalizing um, cosmopolitans. And I have to say to them, I know what you earn. I know what you do. I know what your work prospects are. Let me tell you, you ain't no cosmopolitans. You're not going places. And, and but that was in the sense the the mythology which animated the 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 kind of um, left wing of the Tory party, because that was generally the party the part that supported Europe. And now, of course, um, when push came to shove, it turned out that they were not as powerful. They they couldn't hold their followers. And the party as a whole, not only has uh, not only did the party become um, a pro-independence, a pro-sovereignist party, but it became massively so now. So, so yes, there is a chance under the impact of events with opportunities provided by democratic elections to change things in the way that people want. Now, I make another point, and that is that how we frame the general picture between nationalism and internationalism is, is vitally important because it is a great mistake to allow the left to say that, well, you people on the right, you're nationalists. We people on the left are internationalists. They're not internationalists. Um, what they are is supranationalists or transnationalists. What do I mean by that? Well, nationalism is in fact completely compatible with internationalism. And internationalism is the cooperation of nation states, sometimes through treaties, sometimes through political agreement to achieve certain common objectives. It goes back to the 1840s and 50s when we invented things like the International Postal Union and the International Telegraph Union to achieve common objectives. And that's been, and that kind of uh, in text, uh, text rich, um, uh, um, in internationalism is a, is very much an outcrop of, of democratic nationalism. They are both are quite different and indeed opposed to supranationalism, because in internationalism, the international body um, acts as the agents of the nation states which are its members. In supranationalism, it is the supranational body which has the sovereignty. 
and which more or less compels, induces, bribes or whatever, the nation states, which are its members, to act in accordance with uh, its own um, drives. And that's what you see in, in very clearly in um, the European Union. It's, it is not the Union claims to be the superior body in the end. That, it, that is a work in progress. Of course, they haven't fully achieved that, but they've gone a great deal farther towards giving, so to speak, the EU power over its members than anyone would have expected, let us say, in 1975. And, and that's, those, that's key because democracy can only, in a sense, flourish if the voters are the people with the final say. In, um, in the politics of uh, supranational bureaucracies, bureaucracies, it is the bureaucrats who have the final say. And that's why we say, we commonly acknowledge, even our critics and opponents do, that the, the EU has got a democratic deficit. But the only way they found of dealing with the democratic deficit uh, is, to, is to say at regular intervals, we acknowledge there's a democratic deficit and we're not happy about it. But they never managed to do anything about it because if they tried to do something real about it, they would run up against the fact that, that doing something real for democracy would reduce the power uh, of Europe and the unification of Europe. And they do not want, they do not want to do that. So, so there are two really important factors, it seems to me, um, which we should bear in mind. And they're fundamentally, um, uh, they combine to help us. They combine in this way, it's my final point. Um, the, Europe, the drive towards unification in Europe would have been more successful if, uh, or wouldn't have happened at all, but it would have been more successful if the people driving it um, the European Commission in particular, but the politicians who supported it in all of the major countries, if they had acknowledged the democratic problem and sought ways of dealing with it effectively. Uh, they have sometimes acknowledged it. They have never found ways of dealing with it successfully, and they are continually driven to do undemocratic things, for example, cancelling the impact and cancelling a referendum, uh, ignoring the, uh, their own rules in order to keep the show on the road. And that's why um, democratic nationalism is, in my view, a rising force, a self-conscious rising force now in European politics. John, you've been dealing with this um, movement within the Tory party that was pushing for British sovereignty outside of the EU for years and decades, and then we had the 2016 referendum, so it was a very long process, but is there a feeling that this kind of movement, national conservative movement, is has any chance of being as successful as a British one anytime soon? Or is this fundamentally a kind of British exception? Because, you know, again, one of the reasons that made Brexit a lot easier than, you know, uh, Italy or Italexit, something like that, was that, of course, the United Kingdom still had its monetary sovereignty, so it made things a lot easier. Do you see this, the, no, not too long ago, we're talking about the complications of Brexit, but right now there's a certain optimism around it given the success of the vaccination campaign. Do you think the success of the vaccination campaign um, has inspired or will inspire uh, for more national conservative movements to become as politically powerful as uh, the British have? Well, I think it, it's a very good thing for other movements because it demonstrates that the argument that um, we only only major globalist organizations can solve global problems is false. Very often, uh, cooperation between uh, individual nation states 
um, who share the same um, analysis works better. And I, I, I think that's what's been demonstrated there. I think it's political effect of the vaccination crisis has been um, to make the remain, uh, the remainer or the rejoin argument much more difficult and to strengthen the remain uh, the, the leave case generally. And I think therefore it must have had some kind of inspirational effect among people who want to break free in, in Europe. However, let me make this point. Yeah, we were outside of, uh, we were inside Europe for 40 years, more or less. In that period of time, I, for example, accepted the previous referendum result in 75 and said, well, it may, you know, events may develop at some point in the future that I can't foresee that will make leaving the EU a practical proposition. But it doesn't seem to me to be one at the moment. And therefore I'm going to work, you know, in my, insofar as I'm advancing ideas and arguments and policies, I'm going to argue for the maximum amount of uh, liberalism in the economic sense um, and uh, freedom for nation states within the EU. And then I would put it this way, Mrs. Satcher put it this way in a famous speech, that at the moment, the EU is a cartel of governments. And we would like the EU to be a market of governments. And um, if you have a market of governments, you have the ability, as you have in the American uh, federal system, for uh, nation states or US states to experiment, to have different policies, different tax rates, different regulations, um, different economic policies with each other. And then you see which one works and which one doesn't. And that's, that's a market, a cartel of governments. And the EU became more and more a cartel of governments is one in which, let us say, the French and the Germans say, we don't like the Irish tax rates because they're getting um, more um, international companies settling an island rather than coming to us. Uh, we're finding... Uh, we're finding, for example, our, our personal tax rates are ensuring that one of the most successful parts of the French economy exists between Dover and London. And, 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 and we, we um, those of us who were, so to speak, reluctant uh, US, uh, supporters of the European Union, uh, we argued for um, a Europe, a variable, a variable geometry Europe and a Europe a la carte. And we won some arguments, but we lost most. And we were losing and the train was going in a dip when people said don't you must get on the european train or you'll be left at the station well the answer was the more we stayed in the more it seemed to us that the european train was going to the wrong destination which was a unitary state as you said at the beginning a unitary state uh, which couldn't co-op which couldn't really work because there were too many dissident states within its frontiers. And so uh, I, I think um, while uh, for your role at the moment is to, is to um, while you're still in Europe and, and you probably will remain in Europe, uh, maybe that other countries will find, you know, the European Union more suitable for them um, is to argue for the most sensible um, um, economic policies, the most sensible defense policies, and the most sensible policies of personal liberty. So that you don't want people who are living in a, in a political unit don't want to feel they're prisoners within that union, within that unit. unit. And that's unfortunately 
is the feeling of a great many people at the moment in Europe. They feel the policies that are being decided in Brussels they have no influence over and that they're damaging to their interests, not only on, in the Euro, but also on immigration and, and other key matters. You, and, and, the, and indeed about the national identity. I mean, if one of the things you have to defend in Europe, if you're going to have good policies is the fact your own national identity rather than seeing rather than seeing your national your own national values, um, which might be more religious and traditional than those of the Swedes or the European Commission members, uh, you need to be able to protect them. Sure, and th this following question is going to deal with uh, both of your your uh, your the views of, of the, by the, the both of you on on the uh, on questions in Central Europe, and I'll, I'll start with Anna and then and then turn back to John since uh, John is is now president of the of the, da of the Danube Institute in Budapest. But as as we were alluding uh, towards the top of the, the program, this sort of liberal elitist fixation with with a single locus of political sovereignty over twenty seven countries governed by omniscient. Uh, uh, managers owes a lot to the grand belief, and this is the case made by the netcons that um, that, that it, you know it, it owes it, it owes to this belief uh, in in a, in a rules based order underpinned by universalistic rights based liberalism, and we saw the emergence of this new new world order after the fall of the, the Soviets. Uh, but this this uh, particular worldview, I think, took a lot of uh, took a particular turn in in Brussels and the way that the uh, European project. Uh, really, when when full steam from from that point onwards, and the same, the, the the sort of transatlantic utopia that inspired democracy promotion efforts in Iraq is also, in our view, prospering internally within the EU with you know this this concept of rule of law, which has been sacralized as a morally pure uh, totem that that unaccountable bureaucrats can be entrusted with monitoring without their self interested use of the concept uh, receiving the same scrutiny. Uh, Anna naturally knows the Polish case best, while John's is going to uh, perhaps delve uh, deeper into the, the Hungarian um, uh, scenario. Uh, and, and, and you know, in the particular case of, of Hungary, we've we've seen the uh, the, the, the the glib accusations of democratic backsliding uh, rear their face with uh, uh, with with uh, in a way that that uh, obscures the the the, the social policy successes achieved by conservative governments in, in the region, particularly Viktor Orbán's. And I, I wonder how Anna, starting with you, how you re reflect on. On, on this this use of judicial sophisms as, as political cudgels in in, uh, in the EU. Um, it's a, that's actually probably the single biggest problem of the various issues that uh, John listed and the things to look out for and ways for countries to defend themselves. Um, I think the European Court of Justice, the actions taken by the European Court of Justice, um, the European Court of Human Rights, um, and the work they do, the, probably two institutions that do the most to undermine uh, sovereignty of member states on the continent. Um, I think that one thing that, um, and, I, and I seem to be kind of saying all these hysterical things um, uh, and maybe over dramatic things, but um, I mean, I don't believe so, but um, one, of the, one of the most striking things about the rule of law is that it seems to be invariably uh, violated every time uh, an incorrect party wins or looks perched to win elections. Um, that seems to be the moment when the courts go into overdrive, when the opposition parties can go to the European opposition parties that cannot, that keep failing to rally support for themselves in national elections, can go to Brussels, can go to Luxembourg and essentially sue 
those more successful politicians in their countries who are more responsive to their voters' needs um, and harass them for as long as they're in power. I mean, in the case of the, the phrase rule of law um, is particularly pernicious because when I think about when I first started reading about it um, in uh, the case of Poland, um, it was the 2015 elections and uh, the now still opposition and shrinking and rapidly shrinking into single digits um, civic platform um, did not really appreciate the danger of losing elections, the possibility of losing elections. And uh, really five minutes before midnight when they realized they would, there was a rush to replace uh, the constitutional tribunal judges whose terms would have been up um, under the rule of the incoming government, which means the incoming government would get to nominate the judges. Uh, imagine that. Um, and uh, they basically, a, a group of judges um, who were, whose terms were not yet up were asked to or voluntarily stepped down and others were nominated in their place to secure, I believe, a nine-year term which obviously meant that the incoming um, government would have no chance of exercising its constitutional right to, um, to govern, to make decisions, to make appointments, to pass laws, <laughs> because that move would have secured um, the vetoing of absolutely everything. There's no question that everything would have been found to be illegal. Um, and that's the job that now the European Court of Justice is mostly doing for the opposition. But um, the president who won elections, also a conservative president earlier, simply refused to sign. He, he, I mean, he said like, wait a minute, no, I'm not signing. Um, and the problem with, it's been six years now and we're still hearing about rule of law. We just had a very recent judgment um, out of European Court of Human Rights about how uh, you can't really take various laws seriously in Poland because gosh, who are those judges? Imagine who nominated them. Well, who nominated them? The incorrect people who won elections, who had full constitutional authority to do exactly what they did. So um, what's also interesting is that there is a group, um, oh gosh, it's called the European Center for Law and Justice, I believe. Um, and they uh, investigated the, or examined uh, the actions and behaviors by the European Court of Human, uh, Human Rights in particular and found a very cozy, very disturbing relationship between uh, European NGOs referred to as the civic society, but it's really just a group of people with really good funding and very similar opinions about politics um, who are busy suing various countries and entities to make sure that European values are in fact reality. And it turns out that that court nominates or nominated its own people in a way very similar to what the opposition tried to do in Poland. So no wonder they were upset that the polls noticed. Um, but um, the, the rule of law is, it is a cudgel, and I don't think there is anything about it that's remotely uniformly applied to various countries. Uh, when the rule of law issue came up for Germany, the German constitutional tribunal simply ruled that that their constitution supersedes the European founding documents and uh, Germany's sovereign. Uh, you see what happens in the papers and, and in politicians' speeches when um, Poland or Hungary tries to do the same thing, when they say that they have the sovereign power to make various decisions. 
whether it's for their countries to remain Christian, whether it is about admitting uh, refugees, whether it's, I mean, any number of things. So no, the rule of law is not really the rule of law. The rule of law is an extension of the opposition's fight against conservative government to make sure that somehow, even if somebody by mistake wins, they are not allowed to govern. They will be harassed and their you know, CPUs, if you think of it as a computer, will be entirely taken up by nonsense. Uh, and meanwhile, they're democratically elected. So I think the pressures that John was earlier talking about, about voters feeling that their decisions are not being taken seriously, um, that their vote doesn't matter, well, that certainly contributes to it. And I think the fact that the Polish opposition party is really in the gutter now in, in ratings and its standing, um, I think has everything to do with it. It's generally seen as anti-Polish, as cheering for the European Commission, European Court of Justice, uh, for anybody who has any power to hurt Poland, cheering them every time they do so, especially when they threaten to take away funding or anything like that. In fact, people like uh, Mr. Donald Tusk, uh, Tusk, sorry, um, is, I mean, he actually openly on his Twitter account calls for his uh, allies in the European Parliament and the European Commission to punish the country in which he, his group keeps failing to secure electoral results that are positive for him. Sure. So, yeah. Well, yes, well, let me well, say that, sorry, can I come in? Sure, I, I was just gonna say judicial sovereignty was a, was a major contention point as well in the Brexit uh, battles, John. So I wonder what your, what your impression is, has been since, since, uh, since uh, uh, settling in, in Budapest. Well, as regards Britain, by the way, and Brexit, the, a major element in the Leave campaign which, was, which resonated with the British public was, we want to live in a country in which we make our own laws. We don't want to be governed by other people. And the idea that we should accept that, um, because, you know, for, I mean, but the idea that we should accept that was firmly rejected. Now, the rule of law um, in the European context, it, it seems to me, um, is a distortion of the original idea of the rule of law. And the rule of law as a general idea is a very good and necessary thing. Um, yes. And Margaret Thatcher will tell you again and again, she thought it was at least as important as democracy. It means that the governments, not just governments, we all have to obey the law. And that includes governments and ministers. And, and, that, and if we want, if governments and ministers want to do things, that are against the law, well, it's their obligation to try to persuade Parliament or Congress, whoever, to pass a new law that, that justifies their, that, that will allow them to do what they wish. Now, um, the, the European Union has often presented itself as a union based on law, but of course it breaks its own laws and its own rules and regulations time and again. Um, Anna, I think, at one point mentioned the way in which it overrides uh, the results of referenda it, referendum it doesn't like. One can say, for example, in the, the case of the European Constitution, um, that the European Constitution was supposed to be capable of being rejected if a single um, government state rejected it. But when people did reject it, as the Irish did at one point and the Danes at another and so on, 
um, they were subjected to enormous um, pressures to have a second referendum. And other governments, seeing what had happened, decided that they wouldn't risk referendums. And, and they would just, um, uh, they would say that, you know, as the representatives of the people, uh, they would endorse whatever was on the proposal that was on the European table. Um, I think this, these are very important points in the case of, of Hungary, and I don't, um, you know, I, I, I can't go into the kind of detail in Hungary that Anna went into in Poland because she speaks Polish and I don't speak Hungarian. But I think it is obviously the case that the, um, the, that there are, that your, the Hungarians are um, standing upon the principle that if something is a power reserved for governments, for nation states, then it's reserved for nation states. And they shouldn't be pressured into the position of doing something that they and their voters don't want um, in order to please, uh, the, the, well, essentially the left wing of the European Parliament. I think there are some very, very delicate questions coming here, up here, and they deserve extremely careful handling. But there's a big push from the left in the European Parliament and the individual states to remove, for example, the right of conscientious objection by doctors and nurses to performing certain medical operations, principally, of course, concerned to do with abortion and with um, um, the um, uh, uh, assisted suicide. Now, uh, there is no lack of doctors who are willing to perform these operations. I might regret that, but it's a fact. So the, the idea that we should remove from doctors and nurses in these kind of cases, the right of conscientious objection, when all sides of politics accept the right of conscientious objection um, to, from pacifists, absolving them from fighting in wars, even wars that are existential for the country concerned. It seems to me amazing that this idea of coercing conscience is now an issue promoted by the left. And, and that anyone can see that in future there will be an effort um, to use the power, uh, the financial and subsidy power of the European Union to persuade countries that object. Um, I think in Poland and Hungary do object to that. Um, and, uh, and voters in other places object. This is really very important indeed and has to be handled carefully. The same is true, of course, is of the definition of marriage. And the same is true of how to handle transgender um, questions, which in the United States and in Britain are now coming in for a very serious rethink as some of the, um, as the concerns over young people being encouraged or even coerced into making life-changing uh, choices of uh, medical treatment, um, uh, which are irreversible, um, uh, when they are not in a position, um, not mature enough to make those choices, is now becoming a major political issue. And there's a big rethink beginning to emerge on those issues. We don't want people in Brussels deciding to use the fiscal power of the European Union to force electorates, or governments rather, to do things that their electorates don't want. We have to distribute legal sovereignty among all the states. That will result in me having to live sometimes in a country which does things I don't like, um, and, and that, but that's just one of the choices, that, um, that that's just one of the difficulties um, that democracies have. There is a dispute 
uh, in all these countries on European values. It is, however, absurd for left-wingers and for atheists and for, um, uh, for, for people on the left to claim the authority of European values for their own views when the history, history of Europe demonstrates that um, Judeo-Christian values were, the, were once the universal and are still probably the clear majority uh, commitment of most of the people living in the 27 countries and, and in Britain. So I think that people have got to learn to tolerate each other and to tolerate the laws passed by their opponents rather than running to Brussels to try to force um, a one-size-fits-all moral agenda on the whole of Europe. I will just finally say that the, the, the opposition parties in Central Europe and other countries too, um, which try to rely on Brussels to impose their values on a country which has not accepted them at the ballot box. Those, those opposition parties are, doing, are not helping themselves. They are weakening themselves, as Anna pointed out, because people can see that they are trying to win from the courts what they lost in the election. Well, on the issue of um, the National Conservative Movement, I think one question which we haven't talked about is the relationship between the National Conservative Movement and the United States. Um, because one of the common criticism which is leveled against the kind of National Conservative Movement it is essentially too American in its approach, um, too close with some kind of a right-wing uh, circles in, in, in America. And a lot of people will say, well, you know, you, you want to trade one uh, loss of sovereignty to another by cozying up to the Americans. Um, how, how does the National Conservative, no, again, this was a criticism which was very obvious when Steve Bannon came to, uh, to the EU, trying to build this kind of version of a, a populist, Trump populist movement in the United States in the, um, in the EU and it didn't work very well. How do you respond to this uh, idea? What kind of relationship should the National Conservative movement build with the United States? Um, well, if, if, I, if I may, just no, no, shortly, because I think we're over time a bit, but if you have a, uh, a few words, Anna first and then John. Yeah. I mean, just very quickly, I mean, first, just to make it clear, Steve Bannon is not part of the National Conservative Movement. Um, and there is no relationship between National Conservatives and the United States. The, the beginning of the movement, the sort of defining, there are a few texts that sort of defined it. I mean, I, I think the uh, the most prominent one is Yoram Hazoni, who is part of the Edmund Burke mm -hmm. Foundation, uh, the virtue of nationalism and uh, the perspective was, uh, the language was English, but the perspective was very strongly um, sort of Anglo and Western, but also Israeli. Um, and uh, there is uh, John Fonte's uh, sovereignty or submission. I think that is a very simple way to define it. Um, and then there is, uh, then there are books like, I mean, there's any number of things that John who's here had written but also Rashad Legutko's The Demon and Democracy. Um, this is not a relationship between those countries and the United States. And if there is, then perhaps it's one thing. There is one multinational organization that works extremely well, and it is exactly what national conservatives everywhere feel very comfortable with, and that is NATO. That is NATO. It's a defense alliance um, that was, it's one for all and all for one, but above all, it respects the sovereignty of uh, all nation states that belong to NATO uh, and their interests 
um, and everybody stays in it because they actually have a vested interest to be in it. But as far as the United States goes, it has its own problems and it has its own national conservative concerns. And if there is a simple way to put it, conservatism is conservatism of values and social um, conservatism really largely, but also just the freedom to love your country, to believe in God, not be ostracized for it, uh, not, not be met with a problem or being canceled. Uh, it is, um, and it is also focused on what Poland of the 80s and after defined as solidarity national solidarity, vertical integration within a country, your countrymen first, you take care of your parish, you take care of your parish, you look around, you make sure nobody's left behind. If you make a ton of money in China, and meanwhile, middle America is addicted to drugs that China in return for the jobs and the know-how that they both get transferred and steal, uh, the, the, I don't know, opium-based drugs that, that go into America, into the places that lost jobs, I mean, my goodness, this is this is not free market. This is a destruction of the country, destruction of human dignity. Um, and so I really don't see it as America versus the rest of the world. I think we all have the same problems. Mm. Um, and, and that's what they are. It is about vertical integration of each nation and then peaceful rational coexistence with other countries in ways that John two questions ago described. This is not xenophobic. That is a misrepresentation. There's nothing xenophobic about it. There simply is a sense of responsibility for you and your family, for your, for your local community, for your nation. And then as such, from the water's edge on, you relate to the rest of the world with the interest of all the people within the country uh, in mind. Um, yes, I, I, I'd add to more or less, I agree with Anna, of course, uh, what she's saying is common sense and her description of national conservatism seems to me to be a very reasonable one. Um, but the answer also is very clear for this reason. Um, the European Union, for example, de demands uh, legal sovereignty over its members. Uh, it demands that political, that ultimate political power. The American alliance in all its different phases does not. Um, you can draw a clear distinction again, um, uh, rather similar to the one I began with about uh, and internationalism and supranationalism. And that is the, if, in the, um, the difference between the EU and other relationships we have in the world is that in the case of the EU, the argument that the binding commitment you make is not, well, if you deliver me um, this very specific good, um, I will agree to pay for this the very specific price. That's a bargain. It's an exercise of sovereignty. No, the deal is um, if you join, you're going to have to do what we say on a, on the range of issues here, one, two, three, four, five, and you don't have any choice in the matter. You know, you've already committed yourself to obey the legal sovereignty of the European Union. Now, I'm not saying this politics doesn't come into this and soften it at points, but nonetheless, that's the uh, sovereignty destroying reality of the deal you make. The Americans don't do that. I mean, they, the, the deal with, we make with them in NATO is a very specific one-off deal, which is to say, um, in the event that we come under attack, we'll support each other. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so um, it's not 
um, in the event that you know somebody else imposes a tariff on us or something like that, or uh, we'll support each other. No, it's a it's a very clear, specific commitment. And although it's a very important one, uh, it's nonetheless an exercise of sovereignty rather than a loss of sovereignty, which the EU is. And you can see this for another in another way. Uh, there's been some loose talk since 1945 about the Americans being an empire. Now, the Americans are certainly a powerful country, hugely powerful in the world, and they have allies. And sometimes they argue with those allies. And you could say, for example, the peace of Europe, I would say this, has existed because it was clear that with the Americans as a European power with troops in Europe, they would not tolerate any European country attacking any other European country. That was the basis which made the EU possible. But the fact is there are drawbacks to America being a non-empire, which means that if, for example, uh, you invade uh, a country and take it over, as in Iraq, and you want to produce a more democratic society, if you're an empire, you take sovereignty, you run the show. The Americans are instinctively an anti-imperial part. They are not comfortable doing that. The way, for example, that um, we British were in the 19th century. And you will get left-wing nationalists saying, you know, I don't think, I mean, I, I, didn't, I didn't approve of the British running my country, but they did good things. Whereas the Americans can't do those good things unless they, in a set essence, bribe and, um, and um, uh, you know, push people into uh, becoming the government which, um, into, who, whom they, in whom they place trust. The difference, the, the two differences are Germany and Japan. I mean, in Germany and Japan, the Americans were, along with the other allies, the sovereign power. Uh, and for a while, they ran it as if, like, as if for a sovereign power, sovereign, as if, as, as if they enjoyed sovereignty. But in general, they're not very good imperialists because they don't really want to stick around. Um, they want to go home as soon as they can. I mean, the loudest supporters of the Yanks, Yanks go home, actually exist in the Midwest of the United States, hmm. and we all know that. And that's why a lot of our energy is in politics. Are devoted to trying to prevent the Americans leaving us in the lurch, and um, and in NATO they never have done, and I don't believe they will do. But that's one of the animating anxieties that European politicians feel. Mission accomplished, America. Yes. If, if I just one very quick thing, and I won't I won't develop it because I don't think we have time, but I want to put it on the map because it's very important. Um, because we're discussing national conservatism or conservatism or an alternative to supranationalism as though the option were um, sovereign nation states versus a, really a pretty imperial entity, that a sovereign imperial entity that imposes its laws on the members and is really kind of acting like a viceroy um, of Europe. And, and what's important is that these entities have names. Uh, and I think it is not true that this imperial project uh, is not a way to channel national interests. And uh, Angela Merkel may shrink away when she's being handed a German flag on the anniversary of unification. Nevertheless, there are very few people in Europe who don't understand that the European Union is an exercise in German interests. And the discomfort, in fact, with, with Germany in Central and Eastern Europe very much has everything to do with it the conversations they have with Russia about um, pipelines connecting the two countries 
in a way that, well, other equipment used to connect the two countries, uh, say in 1939 or something. Uh, it is, it, it, that's the source of that discomfort. So while Germany is kind of hiding its flag, doesn't really like to talk about national identity, likes to come to those other countries and warn them about the unvirtue of nationalism. They, in fact, exercise pretty powerful imperial ambition throughout Europe. They have the manpower, the economic power, uh, and, um, you know, they are the power behind the throne. When, and what anyway. you're saying is that there are two countries in Europe, you're saying one, but I would say two, which have not lost their sovereignty within the European Union. I didn't say it's what one. The, uh, I, you, no. No, well, I would say anyway, they're France and Germany. And yes. of two, Germany yes. is the yes. whole pattern. And the key, and the things that tell you that, the thing that tells you that is Nord Stream 2. Uh, if they carry on with Nord Stream 2, there's no way you can say that they are subordinate to European... I completely agree. I mean, I would, unfortunately, and I, I'm sorry to all the Francophiles, but I see them as a fig leaf, but that fig leaf exacted a price, and that price indeed is subsidies and sovereignty. So I do agree. It's Germany and France. These are the two countries that... Uh, and of course, Great Britain, which simply said, no, thank you. And the French to that said, don't let the door hit you on the way out. Uh, so uh, I, I completely agree. I just thought this is an important point because is we're it? talking about it as though we had this multilingual empire. And notice when the Brits were negotiating with the European Union and when Boris Johnson eventually finalized those negotiations, it was Merkel he was talking to. When, uh, when Viktor Orban wanted the EU to lay off from the rule of law uh, issues to be attached to the budget. Um, it was Merkel he negotiated with. When she wanted to talk about 5G, about energy, about intellectual property, whatever trade, he went to talk to Germany. When Trump was upset about NATO, he went to talk to Merkel. It, th th this is, that's just how it is. That's just how it is. It is, it is not a, some kumbaya uh, you know, unity with lovely European values. The discomfort, in fact, comes hugely from the fact that this has been a German project, whatever that state called itself and whatever its boundaries were, because they shifted in the 20th century, uh, it, it's, it has been a very German project and, and it is making a lot of Europeans, especially those who suffered the brunt of the uh, of the cruelty during World War II, which happens to be a central part of Europe because of how they're wedged in between two very ambitious states, it's it's just very hard to pretend that those anxieties don't exist uh, and that resistance to court decisions, again to media that's either German funded, German owned, or German um, Swiss um, joint ventures. Uh, I mean, political for God's sake is half German. It's the, 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 you know, the media, the, infra, the intellectual infrastructure, energy infrastructure, uh, roads infrastructure, uh, I mean, transportation, all of it is in German hands. Yeah. You know, I thought I thought it was worth uh, visiting with with uh, two of the people who were involved in that conference to to kind of gauge uh, what progress uh, has been made as part of this this effort to federate people from all sorts of different uh, national contexts. Right? I mean, their their effort was to bring together in, in a single uh, gathering people who were 
uh, working on all sorts of uh, different national uh, contingencies and, and facing all sorts of different problems, but that could unite around this idea that um, the EU was uh, was uh, first and foremost a, a supranational project driven by an ideology of uh, universalistic liberalism, and that uh, and that there needed to be uh, an equally coherent uh, alternative uh, to this uh, to this ruling supranational ideology was which as an as an under 30 and I, I really I really like how we sort of hook this on a generational uh, spectrum towards the start of the episode I, I think we've we've sort of uh, grown into this this cultural environment where the ideas that underpin the European experiment and, and supranational ideology are rarely uh, if at all challenged I mean uh, in fact I was reading I was reading a press piece uh, just a few weeks ago on, on a plane about the uh, Museum of European History that opened that opened a few years ago in Brussels, which is this sort of, which is this sort of effort, uh, a very a very uh, clearly ideologically bent effort at uh, you know buttressing uh, the European project and the, this this sort of universalistic uh, axiomatic uh, ideal of peace as only uh, guaranteed by a supranational form of governance, right? And, and, and this idea, which I think we, we, uh, we touched upon in, in an earlier episode with, um, with I, I believe it was uh, Michael Kimmage, uh, you know, this, this idea that nationalism necessarily leads uh, to war. So I, I thought it was, it was worthwhile to that extent, this episode. It, it, allowed, it allowed us to visit, to visit with two uh, key voices from this, uh, and I, I wouldn't call it a movement. It, I, it really isn't a movement. Uh, this is just a sort of a of a gathering, a, a physical gathering at uh, different points in time once a year where people uh, agree to kind of come under this national conservative uh, brand and, and give speeches and, and share ideas and, and dialogue. Uh, but I really wouldn't call it a movement. Um, but I, I know you've got a lot of pushback, so go ahead. Well, just to go back on the idea of the European Museum, I think there's, a, there's still a remaining question, which is, is the EU the, the mother of peace or is she the daughter of peace? And, and I think it's, it's, it's unclear either way. Um, I, I want to push back a little bit against, um, no, no, in a friendly way, against a few things that um, John and Anna have said, because while I think there are some kind of supranational ideals driving the EU, there is also a political reality of the EU, which is very far from being as lofty as, you know, kind of United States of Europe and whatnot. And the reality is super messy. The reality is made of different compromises with over different 27 EU member states. Um, and, and in many ways, it, it curtails the capacity of the Commission, it curtails the capacity of Eurocrats to you know, build a, a unitary state because you have to deal with national political realities. And also the fact that, um, you know, when push comes to shove, most of Europeans um, still support the EU, uh, maybe in a kind of very self-interested way. Maybe they're very far away from this kind of... Uh, lofty project of a United States of Europe of a unitary state, but when push comes to shove, most Europeans are kind of pro-European, and you know look for, no look no further than in France, where in 2017 Marine Le Pen had run her campaign against against the EU against the euro, and now she's completely backtracking on this because she understands public opinion doesn't want doesn't doesn't want to be as extreme on the on the EU. But that does not mean that. Um, for Europeans are widely pro-EU. I think there's a lot kind of 
criticism to some extent it might even be an, unha- an unhappy marriage in some cases but i think we have to deal with reality which is uh, yes there are ideals driving the eu but there's also a political reality which is much more messy much more um complicated and um you know which deals with with compromises between different factions between different countries different different institutions and uh, I think that's something we something we have to be careful when talk about the eu in such kind of a broad stroke yeah well, well, well i think so i think um so i think one of the one of the key uh, nuances that have to be made up front is that um, you know, it, it, the, the contention made when, when we speak of a supranational ideology isn't that uh, this ideology is necessarily, uh, you know, broadly held. And in fact, this is what really makes it so dangerous, I would argue, is that this is an elite ideology. It's, it's driven. Uh, and, and in fact, you, you speak of ideals. And I think, I think there is an idealistic uh, component uh, to Europeanism. But I think, uh, I think the, um, the, uh, the, the sad reality is that uh, uh, the, 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 the failures of this uh, supranational system are oftentimes covered up uh, with the same uh, zeal, ideological zeal that they were under far more, uh, you know, far darker uh, ideological regimes when you think of, of the Soviet Union. And I, I do not think this is, this is too far-fetched a comparison. I think that uh, when you speak in elite circles in, in most European countries these days, uh, the belief uh, that the EU stands as a bulwark for peace and prosperity is so deeply ingrained that the, the, the least um, attempt to have an argument with that ideology gets you typecast as some sort of zealot, as some sort of, uh, you know, nationalistic, uh, you know, retrograde, anti-European populist. And um, I think this is what makes, um, what makes the discussion so difficult. In fact, I think this is what we've, we didn't uh, commit so much time to, the, to discussing vaccines, which was a pity. But I think vaccines, the, the vaccine question really captures uh, what is wrong with this ideology, and, and namely that, um, you know, it's, it's so when, when, the, when the evidence uh, for the failures and the impossibility of effectively governing 27 nations from a single locus of power in Brussels that nobody's able to help to hold accountable. Nobody even knows uh, really who's who's calling the shots and who's making decisions for 450 million citizens. When when so much power is delegated to that to such a narrow uh, group of people, then uh, the failures that they will necessarily commit uh, then are you, you just can you just can uh, point fingers at at uh, at, at, at them because they will they will wield the ideology as a as a sort of a, as a uh, as a as a defensive uh, tactic, right? They'll say, you know, we were trying to procure vaccines because we are the efficient managers of this of this liberal empire, and and so it, it makes it all very it's very it's very opaque. Uh, you know, you, you you can rarely you will rarely get a chance to sit down with uh, a Eurocrat and have a, a, a facts-based discussion about the, the political ideals that drive the EU. And I think what, 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 what's so sad about this is that the, the, the European project, uh, primarily after the war, but, uh, but even more so after the fall of the Soviet Union, is, is built on this idea of stemming the power of ideology, right? It is built on the rubbles of two uh, particularly deathly ideologies, Nazism and, and socialism, right? Communism. And uh, and I and I what I what I what makes me so worried as a, as an under uh, thirty year old is is uh, the extent to which I see it all all around me the evidence that we're uh, 
that the pendulum is swifting towards a new form of ideology, which is being held by the elites and by a broad swath of the public with the, with the same fervor, the same zeal. And naturally, these people won't uh, go so far as to kill their political opponents. They won't conquer countries uh, through violence. They'll, they'll do so through open markets and regulation. But I, I don't think there's that much of a difference in terms of the ideological depth uh, that this project is, uh, is anchored in. I do think that this is, a, this is an ideology. It, it's not a violent ideology, but it becomes a violent ideology when uh, the lives that are being that are, that this uh, that this vaccine procurement strategy is costing, you know, you can't you can't point you can't point to you know uh, the, the the evident failure of the system and be like this is there's something wrong with the ideology because the ideology itself is a progressive liberal universalistic ideology so you know so arguing against it uh, brings with it so many uh, stigmas and, and stereotypes so I think I think we're getting I think we've got to grapple with uh, with the full the full ideological scope of what I, I want to push back again. I think I have this kind of, kind of general rule of thumb, which is never compare anything with Nazi Germany or the Soviet Union, because I think it just makes the conversation pretty much impossible. Because you're either accusing them of the death camps in Poland or the um, gulags in Siberia, and I think it makes the conversation completely impossible. I don't think it's fair comparing it with the Soviet Union. There's many kind of legitimate criticisms you can make of the EU. I think there's a lot of ideological depth to the kind of uh, you know elitist European consensus. I agree with that, but I think I think comparing to Soviet Union or comparing it to you know kind of any kind of dangerous ideology like that, it's not making a uh, it's not helping your case. I think it it, it kind of blocks the whole conversation. No, of course, but it, it isn't. But we need to be able to trace the parallels it, just in terms, just in the specific uh, criteria of uh, the fervor with which the ideology is held. We've got to be able to read the parallels. But I, I don't even think that's true, though, because, you know, the, the communist fervor, I think, was much, much stronger um, than, than kind of the European uh, fervor is. And I think to some extent, even, even that, to some extent, the... Among the kind of elitist circles, there's a lot of kind of virtue signaling when people say I'm pro-European before being British or something like that. Uh, you know, the uh, follow back pro-European Twitter crowd, all these people. I think there's a lot of virtual, sing virtual signaling here rather than kind of uh, being true believers because it allows you to um, step above your fellow nationals and show you're not uh, motivated by petty chauvinism. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think you have to be, yeah, no, I mean, I, I understand where the criticism come from, but I think comparisons with with soviet union or you know nazi germany just uh, instinctively make me retract into myself and say oh, you know i, I can't, can't well I, I mean i've 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 had conversations with with uh, an awful lot of people in, in my home country and and who really really are living and walking proof that uh that uh the eu is an, is an ideological project and you know we can think of other parallels if, if cuba is a if cuba or north korea are or you know, or you know, less unsavory parallels, and I'm happy to go with those. I understand the prejudice against against uh, the political use of memory, but I do not think this is a political use of memory. I just, uh, you know, I, I just try to uh, to sound the alarm against uh, what I think is a profoundly dangerous uh, ideological mechanism uh, with which people just uh, embrace uh, these new ideologies, and, and naturally. At the way I preface my argument is saying, you know, that this is, thank God, um, uh, not, a, not a violent ideology. God forbid it, it won't lead to war. 
but that doesn't that doesn't that changes nothing to the fact that in, in the substance of it, uh, it is being embraced with a worrying uh, level of single mindedness. Uh, in fact, you you scour around our generation and the people the kind of people that I went to school with and even college. Uh, there's an awful lot of people who literally uh, are like they will nip any argument in the butt. They will not want to discuss. They will not want to engage uh, opposing arguments with you. If, if that's not ideological at a Soviet level, then then I, I don't really know what is. And this is not a comparison to the gulags. This is a comparison to the uh, the ideological uh, the ideological uh, uh, underpinnings of, of supranational ideology. The kinds of the, the, the kinds of the, the extent to which people will mobilize uh, rhetoric and argument to defend. Uh, to defend uh, this new regime, it, 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 you know, I, I don't think it's a comparison in the nature of the ideology. It's a comparison in the degree to which it is, it is, uh, it is, it is embraced. So, um, so that that's one thing that really, really, really worries me. And I, I, I don't want to sort of be seen as a mouthpiece for for any sort of alternative ideology, lest I be, lest I attract the, the same sort of a critique that I'm addressing. But. Um, but I do think that, 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 that you know you've, you've got to be able to argue with an idea. This is this is how this is how power gets entrenched is when you're not able to uh, to uh, debate uh, at the core of of, uh, of the ideas that drive that drive the, the people with the power. So yeah, I think it's interesting. It's, it's um, one of the first times I think we've uh, we've had such a I mean, sorry, not major disagreement, but I think it's a point where we. We have different points of view. But anyways, um, glad as always to be able to do this with you, Jorge. And um, don't forget, there is no ads on the show. So if you want to, to support us, there's many things you can do. You can subscribe on Spotify. You can rate. You can review. Uh, five stars on Apple Podcasts. Always, you know, puts a smile on our faces. Tons of small things you can do to support the show. We've got plenty of great episodes coming up. So please stay tuned. And, uh, see you